Okay, if everyone would open their Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Last couple of weeks, I introduced a, a new series of messages uh, based on the seven redemptive gifts of the Spirit. And those messages were titled, uh, Changing Seasons. I told you that I found new language to describe what I've been sensing and feeling for some time now. And they were materials from Arthur Burke's Plumline Ministries. And he communicates the, the changing seasons this way. That the spiritual seasons have changed. And we have changed from what he calls a ruler season to a mercy season. And that language comes from the redemptive gifts listed in Romans chapter 12. Ruler and mercy are the sixth and seventh of the redemptive gifts listed there. And Arthur Burke parallels the seven uh, gifts with seven seasons of church history. And he believes that we've entered into this seventh season as of um, early 2004. Now, last week um, I showed a clip of Arthur Burke speaking on, on that topic of these changing seasons, and we had some Q&A afterwards, and it might have been Tim, but somebody asked the question, how did Arthur Burke know that the seasons changed? And it was a good question. And why does he say it changed then? Well, I didn't know the answer to that question. I got an email yesterday from Rob Mazzi. You guys remember Rob? He was here about a year ago. Rob is, um, Rob is friends with Arthur Burke. He, they've done stuff together. I don't know if they're close personal friends, but they certainly know each other well, well enough to exchange personal emails. So Rob had listened to last week's message online and um, sent an email off to Arthur Burke saying, hey, <laughs> how do you know? It was February 2004. And so Arthur Burke shot a, a reply to Rob, and I thought I would read you uh, his answer this morning so we can have the question answered. This is what Arthur Burke wrote. He said, in spring of 2004, we began to get a ton of reports of grace being removed from ministries. What worked so well in the ruler season was suddenly for no reason, not working anymore. We followed the trail of that for a year and finally noticed that the organizations that went back to their ruler season projects with fierce intentionality were simply spinning their wheels and getting more and more tired. And the ones who stopped and listened were retooled and there was a new, deeper grace to do things in a different way. That removal of grace from the 10,000 or so ministries that God had designated to be the cutting edge of the new movement is my marker. So he did it via empirical data with the connectedness um, and observations that he had from what sounds like 10,000 ministries. So based on that information and the revelation you got from God, he said that we changed seasons from a ruler season to a mercy season back in early 2004. So I hope that answers your question. I hope it's a little bit more helpful. So today I want to begin to look more closely at the seven redemptive gifts that this concept is built upon. See if we can lay a little bit more of the foundation. Sound like a good idea? All right. Um, so today, today's message is titled Seven Redemptive Gifts of the Spirit. I want to do a few things. I want to look at gift lists in Scripture, the significance of the number seven, the context that Paul's speaking from in uh, Romans 12, 
and then give you some definitions and some personal applications. So I have a lot to say today. So fasten your seatbelts. I'm going to try and go through this quickly. Because after this, I feel like there's something spiritual God wants me to share with you. Um, so for the last couple of weeks, I've been wearing my leader hat. I've been pointing us in a direction. Today, I'm kind of taking the leader hat off, and, and I'm putting the, the teacher hat on. So follow along as I read and pray out of uh, Romans chapter 12, beginning of verse 6. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern or rule diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do so cheerfully. So the seven redemptive gifts are prophet, servant, teacher, encourager, ruler, excuse me, encourager, giver, ruler, and mercy. I've um, identified, and I'm sure that there's more, but I've identified four common lists of spiritual gifts in the Scripture. This, these are not the, on, the only seven. Other common lists that you're probably familiar with would be the charismatic or spiritual gifts listed in 1 Corinthians 12. And those would be wisdom, knowledge, discernment, prophecy, tongues, interpretation, faith, healing, and miracles. Others of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the office gifts, as listed in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, of apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher. There are the seven spirits of God found in Isaiah 11.2, which is the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And then finally is the list that we're looking at now, what are known as the redemptive gifts of the spirit. Some people refer to them as the motivational gifts of the spirit. And those, as I said, are prophet, servant, teacher, encourager, giver, ruler, and the gift of mercy. For this series, I'll be focusing on this particular list, the one that Paul offers in Romans chapter 12. So there are seven redemptive gifts. And I want to take a look at the significance of the number seven. The number seven has... Um, a profound significance, especially in Scripture. But even beyond the word, seven seems to be significant. From our streams teaching, we know that the number seven means perfection or completion. Scripture is filled with sevens. It's just replete with sevens. Along with the seven spirits of God in Isaiah 11 and the seven redemptive gifts in Romans 12, um, we have here... Let me just name a few. There are the seven days of creation. There are the seven churches in Revelations chapter 2 and 3. In the tabernacle, there are seven pieces of furniture. The brazen altar, the bronze laver, the table of showbread, the golden lampstand, the altar of incense, the ark of the covenant, 
And the seventh one is the mercy seat. There are seven, um, seven feasts of the Israelites as Passover. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, Pentecost, the Feast of Trumpets, the Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Why seven? Why not six? Why not nine? But there are seven. There are seven parables of Jesus in Matthew 13. The sower, the parable of the weeds, the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the yeast, the treasure in the field, and the, the pearl, and um, the net with fish. There are the seven last words of Christ on the cross. Father, forgive them. Today you will be with me in paradise. Here is your mother. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I am thirsty. I am finished. Father, into your hands I commend, commit my spirit. It gets my attention. Does it get your attention? It's a whole lot of sevens. But there's more. There's the seven seals in Revelation chapter 6. The white horse, the red horse, the black horse, the pale horse. The souls of the martyrs, great earthquakes, the golden censer. And there are more in Scripture. If you do a study, you'll find a lot more, at least double this list. But these are some of the more common ones. There's a significance to the number seven. Not to mention nature and art and science. There are seven colors in the rainbow, white, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, and purple. Genesis 19, excuse me, 9, 13, God says, I've set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. God establishes the rainbow. And when he does it, there are seven colors. There are seven major notes in the musical, musical scale. C, D, E, F, G, A, and B. There are seven continents. There is significance, there's spiritual significance to the number seven. We have an all-powerful God who can do anything he wants to do. And he's done things repeatedly utilizing the number seven. I think that's significant. For those of you who like to study, who like to do research, I think that this is a vein of gold that's waiting for you to mine it. I'd be interested to hear what you come up with. By any measure, even the most superficial observation, we can see that the number seven is significant. So would you be surprised to discover that these sevens parallel one another? That the number one item on one list somehow is connected to the number one item on another list? Or the number fives? Or the number sevens? that the seventh redemptive gift of mercy parallels the seventh day of creation, rest, and the seventh piece of furniture in the tabernacle, which is the mercy seat, and the seventh color in the rainbow, which is purple. Would that surprise you at all? And I think there's significance to that too. If you like mysteries, if you like puzzles, if you like to ponder things and find out the deeper, richer meaning, there is something here 
to discover. Proverbs tells us that it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the glory of kings to search a matter out. I think God does stuff like this so that we would pursue it. I think he's put something in us, in our our, our created nature, so that we can't help but want to figure out the mystery or solve the puzzle or figure out the riddle. Right? Why are mysteries, why are so many mystery books popular or movies popular? Why are thousands of puzzles sold? Right? There's something in us we have to know. Dream interpretation. There is an innate, divinely given curiosity that I want to know what the mystery of this dream is. I want to have understanding of it. I think there's a riddle here. I think there's a divinely planted riddle here for our benefit. So there's significance. There are seven redemptive gifts. There's a significance to the number seven. It seems significant to me. How about some context? This this book of Romans was written by St. Paul to the Christians in Rome. And he wrote it near the end of his three-month stay in Greece, specifically in Corinth, on his third missionary journey, probably somewhere around 58 A.D., And in this book of Romans, he communicates two major themes. In the first 11 chapters, he communicates the theme that the gospel is the power of God to save all people. And the second theme is he begins to lay a foundation for Christian living. And that goes from from chapter 12 to 15. The great reformer Martin Luther said that if we could have had only one book of the Bible, that it, it should be Romans. That it's that significant. But we're here in Romans chapter 12, and just to give you a brief outline, in the first two verses of Romans 12, Paul's communicating that we are to be living sacrifices, not conformed to this world's system. In verses 3 to 8, he tells us that we ought to, in unity, humbly live out the spiritual gifts that have been given to us by God. And he specifically names these seven redemptive gifts. And he ends Romans 12 telling us that we're to do all of this in love. Again, for those of you who like to study, I think Romans 12 will be a great place to park and read, and meditate, and pray through, and study. Let me define uh, these seven gifts. From Strong's Concordance, the prophet is one who offers divinely inspired speech, and he's foretelling, he's telling the future. The servant is an attendant, he's one who serves and helps to meet the needs of another person. The teacher is, is, is the master, he's a master teacher. And he gives instruction. The encourager comes from the root word paraclete, another name for the Holy Spirit. He's the one who comforts and encourages and who strengthens. The giver is one who imparts or who gives over to another person generously, 
The ruler presides over. They're the superintendent. They're the protector, the guardian. And the one with mercy is the one with heartfelt compassion who helps the afflicted. Now, these redemptive gifts of the Spirit are also known as motivational gifts. And they can be likened to temperaments or the personality types. My research on the seven redemptive gifts and the studies that others have done have discovered traits that identify people who have um, one or another of these redemptive gifts. Um, I've heard it said, and I believe that inside of our spirit are all seven of these redemptive gifts. Inside our soul is predominantly one. I think as you listen to this next section, you will probably find that you can find yourself primarily in one of the seven redemptive gifts. There'll be a primary gift. And then there'll be a secondary one that seems to come close to it, but not nearly as strong. So if we liken these seven redemptive gifts to personality types, there would be one that's stronger and one that's not so strong, a primary and a secondary. So let me, for the purposes of definition and for your understanding, share with you some of the information I have and see if you could find yourself in the seven. I'll share strengths and weaknesses of, of each of them. Let me preface it with this. Um, Arthur Burke has a very different philosophy of dealing with his ministry materials than other ministries do. He is happy to run with it for as far as he can, and then he gives it away to other people, and he tells them, now you run with it. You take it for as far as you can take it. So that being the case, we can find the basis of his um, teaching, and other people have built upon it. And there are resources online, if you're diligent enough to find them, that communicate this. This is where I found this stuff. I think it's valuable. I think it w it's helpful for us to be able to identify ourselves and what gift uh, we uh, operate strongest in. So, like I said, consider this a tool for definition and understanding. Let's start. We'll do them in order. We'll start with the prophet. Here are some of the... Um, so many attributes of the person with uh, the redemptive gift of prophet. They see the world primarily as black and white. They easily understand and live by spiritual laws. They're highly principled people. They're concerned with the issues of justice and injustice. There is, an, uh, uh, there is something in the core of their being that cannot abide injustice. Action has to be taken. They know the mind of God. They easily inhabit both the natural and spiritual realm. They have strong, intuitive senses and a very strong faith. They don't have any problem or difficulty at all with confrontation. They're visionaries, and they tend to have the ability to see further than most people can. They very much dislike being bound or boxed in 
and restricted. They're kind of outside-the-box people. They're highly competitive. There's fire in their belly. They have a passion for excellence. And they need to have a sense of destination. Where are we going? When the redemptive gift of prophet is functioning um, in an unredeemed person, or when that person is functioning in an unredeemed way, then we can see these traits, these negative traits. The person with the redemptive gift of prophet, they can become judgmental. They can have a high vacillation of emotions. Up one minute, down the next. Up the minute after that. They tend to be very hard on themselves when they fail. There seems to be a susceptibility to witchcraft. It seems to um, uh, attack them easily. And they need to work harder, much harder, on maintaining uh, personal relationships. So that's the, um, that's the prophet. The servant. The servant loves to help people. A person with the redemptive gift of servant. They love to help people. Sometimes even to their own neglect and detriment. The word servant comes from the root word to aid or to be, as it were, a waiter. The servant is amiable and compliant, an excellent team player. If somebody has a redemptive gift of servant, you want them on your team. Many times the, the person with the servant gift will apologize unnecessarily. They don't think that they're excellent, even if they are. They are extremely loyal especially the family members. They're always working behind the scenes and don't want the limelight. The servant sees needs quickly. And they are consistent and steady in life. They have a great work ethic. Their motives are pure. They assist other people expecting nothing in return. And God usually grants this person, the people with the redemptive gift of servant, he usually grants them great authority, mainly because they don't want it. In an unredeemed person, uh, the redemptive gift of servant is easily taken advantage of. They need to often uh, set firm boundaries in their lives. They can be susceptible to a victim mentality. You know, woe is me. They're often exploited. And sometimes they tend to attract disrespect. That's the servant. Third one, teacher. The, the, the person with the redemptive gift of teacher, they see details that many people, many others overlook. They have strong responsibility toward others. They have a broad sense of understanding. And even so, they tend to be a specialist 
with a predisposition to to writing and to education. That makes sense, doesn't it? They tend to process information slower than other people do. They're chewing on it and chewing on it and chewing on it. They need to viol- uh, they need to validate truth. They love to do research, and they love accuracy. So if there are teachers in the room today, you know, just a couple of the, the nuggets I dropped concerning sevens or Romans 12 probably inspired you to go and dig deeper. They're precise with facts. There's another, there, there are another one with a deep sense of family loyalty. However, in the unredeemed teacher, um, they can become an enabler uh, by failing to allow others to take responsibility. They can be prone to denial, and they can be susceptible to a religious spirit. Because they love the truth, they can resist new revelation. For example, the scribes and the Pharisees. They can become legalistic. That would be the downside. The encourager, some of the positive aspects of a person with a redemptive gift of the encourager, excuse me, the exhorter. They encourage, uh, they counsel, they intercede. They're the consoler in the group. If you need our babies, they're the one you want to go find. You want to go find the exhorter. They'll give you all the our babies you need. always diligent and busy. They can easily cross relational lines with different groups of people. Comes from the Greek word paraclete, which means one who comes alongside. They tend to be very evangelistic in their world changes. They're excellent communicators and they're highly relational. They quickly adapt to different situations, and they're visionary. They see wider than others do. However, when unredeemed, the exhorter can be susceptible to taking too much work on themselves, and they need to allow others to own their own problems. They can go with their feelings over principle, over principles, and often it's important for them to develop character and integrity. It's especially important for the, for the exhorter. The giver. The giver is liberal in their generosity, sometimes extravagant, but not wasteful. They have an innate ability to produce at a high level. They prefer to be non-confrontational. They're adaptable and flexible, which sometimes makes their gift harder to identify. They have diverse interests and involvements. They have um, a high ability to nurture other people. They have a generational worldview. They see the bigger, big picture. 
Usually people with a giver gift walk in um, great measures of favor. Proverbs 18.16 says that your gift will make a way for you. The giver's gift often makes a way for them and they walk in favor. They're more situational than experiential. They're solutions orientated and there's a tendency to be independent. They like to resist absolutes and they want to keep many options open. Women with the redemptive gift of giver are more sensitive to the hidden agendas of other people. They can kind of sniff it out. In the unredeemed giver, they can be susceptible to control. They can give with strings attached. They can be greedy, accumulating things for themselves. This is the opposite of the purpose why they've been given the gift. They often need to learn how to trust God entirely. And if they're driven by fear, there'll be a tendency to hoard. So just two more. You guys still with me? Okay, the ruler. Some of the strengths of a person with the redemptive gift of ruler. They have strong administrative abilities. They extend resources further than most people. They're an implementer and a builder. They have a high level of excellence, and they seem to thrive on pressure. They're solutions-orientated. They're rarely stagnant, always moving forward, always progressing. They stand alone on principles, and loyalty is extremely important to them. They have the ability to draw the best out of even the worst people. They're excellent with time management and can juggle many things simultaneously. However, the unredeemed ruler can be controlling. They can be susceptible to a lack of resources. They fall short in the nurture area and can be an overly strict disciplinarian. And they have a tendency to put others around them under the same high pressure that they're comfortable operating in. One more. Mercy. Mercy is compassionate. Mercies are the benefactors. They're empathetic. They're sensitive. They sense others' pain and they embrace it. People with the redemptive gift of mercy are well-liked, and they rarely have enemies. They're a safe person for the wounded, and they discern people well. They can sense and attract the wounded and the rejected. They're feelings-orientated. They're intuitive, intuitive, intuitive. The mercies know the heart of God, where the prophets know the mind of God. The mercies love worship, and they enter into God's presence easily. They love beauty, and, they, and the mercies define 
the ambiance. They're hard workers. They're drawn to people with prophetic gifts. Mercies need intimacy, and they need physical contact. They need to touch. They need to hug because they are designed to help and to heal. Mercies dislike confrontation. Research I found says that the gift of mercy is dramatically different than the other six gifts. The mercy hears God with his heart, while others tend to hear God with their mind. God uses the gift of mercy to bring the spiritual climate into right alignment through the blessing of presence. Let me say that again. God uses the gift of mercy to bring the spiritual climate into right alignment through the blessing of presence. A a person with a strong, redemptive gift of mercy can change the atmosphere, can change the spiritual atmosphere and bring it into alignment, not by what they do, but simply by the fact that they show up. There are downsides to the gift of mercy. They can become an enabler. They, too, are prone to a victim mentality. Woe is me. They can easily become exploited. And for for these reasons, the person with a redemptive gift of mercy, they need to be able to set firm boundaries in their relationships. So, some application. How many of you are able to see yourself described in one of those seven redemptive gifts? A few of you? That's cool. How many of you could identify someone else you know in one of the other redemptive gifts? It's like, oh boy, that sounds just like fill in the blank. Well, if you'd like more help with this, I've put together some resources. If you go to our church website, thebridgelongisland.com, Underneath the link where it says sermons, there's a page uh, entitled uh, Redemptive Gifts Test. And there are two PDF files that you can download. The first PDF file, all you can do is click on it. Um, It'll download. And um, there are two tests on there. I think one is like 90 questions, multiple choice, and and the other is um, 140 questions. You can take one or both of the tests. I took both the tests, and the results were pretty much the same uh, for me. My highest gift is mercy. Is anybody surprised that it's mercy? Um, so if you're interested in a, if, you, if you're given to that, if you like personality type tests, I know some people like Nadine, they hate those tests, right? But some of you may enjoy those type of tests. It's on there. You can download them, fill them out, and it tells you how to, uh, how to score the results. And then there's a second file there you can, a second PDF file you can download. And basically it's the descriptions, maybe with a little bit more information, but the descriptions I just laid out to you on the the types, uh, the temperaments uh, of each one of these uh, redemptive gifts. So you could take a test, find out who you are, and then go, if you didn't take notes this morning, because I know that was a lot of information, you can go through that and, um, and, uh, and look it up and see. See how accurate it is for you or for any other family member. So I just want to end with this. 
I, I, it was delightful to have um, Sarah and Wade's wedding on Thursday, on November 11th. Now, I've shared with you before, November 11th is a, is a special day for me. Since back in 2005, and every November 11th since, uh, I've met with God. We've ha- I've had some kind of encounter with him, and he has shown me things. And so um, I sat in the back of the church for worship this morning, just where Anthony's sitting now, and I was wondering if I should share any of it with you. Um, over the years, I've shared experiences and withheld from sharing experiences, and both were motivated by pride, honestly. And I've shared too much, and I've shared too little, and on both ends, it's been pride. So I wrestle with, I don't wrestle with receiving them. I have no wrestling with um, accepting when God does this or believing it when, I, when he shows me what he shows me. That's fine. What I do with it afterwards, I struggle so much with that. You know? And so I'm sitting back there during worship this morning, and I'm praying about whether or not I should share this. I'm thinking, you know, God, I'm content if it's just for me. I don't have to share this with anybody. And I'm sitting there, and I'm praying. I said, but Lord, if you want me to share this with you, give me some kind of sign. And with that, Jen walks past me with these two rainbow-colored banners. And rainbow colors were part of my sermon this morning, and they were part of the experience <laughs> that I had on 11-11. It's like I had my head down. I was praying, God, if you want me to share this, give me some kind of sign. I lift my head up. Jen walks by with two rainbow-colored banners. Brand-new banners, right? Yeah. So redone banners. And so I was like, okay, that was enough for me to say I'm supposed to share it. So I want to share with you um, what God gave me. And then I feel like there's part of it he wants me to give away to you. So we'll have some type of, of ministry time. So, you know, I've learned uh, how to, you know, get myself into a place where I can uh, enter into God's presence. I know the things that work for me. You know, for me, a peaceful setting, um, beginning with some kind of worship music, you know, reading, studying the word different times or combinations of. These get me to a place where I'm in that peaceful place and I can prepare myself in case God wants to do something. Like I've said before, I can't make it happen, but I can respond when he does. And I've I've gotten used to November 11th. He tends to do this, so I make myself available. For the days and weeks leading up to it, I see 11s, 11s everywhere, okay? That's another signal to me, and I see them with increasing frequency. It's like, Tom, pay attention. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Boom. And then on that day. So on that day, I had a vision. I kind of go into this trance-like state. And the first thing I see is a hand reaching down, down between my shoulder blades, and as if this hand takes something out of my spine. And I see this long, thin, red thread removed from my spine. And then immediately a purple one is inserted in its place. And i got to tell you, it wasn't until this morning that I made the connection between the color purple and the mercy seat and the gift, the redemptive gift of mercy, that I realized, oh, purple was significant. Since Thursday, I've been wondering. I wonder why red was taken out and purple was put in. But this long, thin strand of red was taken out and a purple strand was put right down the length of my spine. And as soon as I went in, I could feel 
the power of God. I could feel the presence of the Spirit kind of emanating from the center of my being, and it just began to build and kind of go out like this. And as it went out, the purple at the center became white until it washed away, until white just overtook everything. And that happens pretty often in these experiences for me. It's like God takes me from one place to another, and as I, and as I arrive in that place, it's as if my spiritual eyes have to adjust to the light. It's so bright. It's just everything is white. And then things begin to have definition. And I found myself back in one of my most favorite places that God takes me to into the Spirit. It's a room I call the library. And it's a place where I meet with the Trinity. There are two beautiful leather chairs. And I'm sitting in one, and the Father, the Father, God the Father, is sitting in the other chair right beside me. I'm seated at his, to his right. He's to my left. And around us, I know representing Jesus, is bookshelves filled with beautiful leather-bound books, all different colors. And the shelves go higher than I can see. And it's the Word of God. We're surrounded by the Word. It represents Jesus. And we're sitting in these chairs. In front of us is a huge mantle fireplace with a roaring fire. And I've come to learn that that fireplace represents the Holy Spirit. So when he takes me to this place, I have the, this incredible privilege to experience the Trinity in a very personal way. And so I turn to, to my left, and I look at the Father, and he's looking good. He's, he's thin, he's lean, and he's well-dressed. He's got white hair that's kind of cut nicely. It's not like this big, wild head of hair, like, you know, one of my kids. <laughs> he's got a nice, trim haircut. And he's dressed nicely. He has his lights crossed, and he has a book in his lap. And he looks at me, and he says, welcome back. He says, I've been looking forward to this day. My heart warms. And I told him I was so happy to be here. Then he says, let me read to you. He says, listen carefully. And he begins to read, and as soon as he does, I recognize it's Isaiah 43. And I think this part is mostly for me, but I just want to give you the full picture. Okay? And so he begins reading from Isaiah 43, and he says, Do not fear. He says, I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And with that, he closes his book and he looks up at me and he says, I have been with you throughout every circumstance of your life, and I am with you now. You are my son. I am your father, always. Then he looks back at the book in his lap, and he opens it again, and he continues to read. Again, from Isaiah 43, further down. He says, forget the former things. He says, do not dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? Again, looking up at me, he says, the seasons have changed. 
It's time for sons to become fathers and daughters to become mothers. He says this. He says, there is no greater need in this hour. That the seasons have changed. It's time for sons to become fathers and for daughters to become mothers. There's no greater need in this hour. And then the third time, he looks down at the book and he reads. And it says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. And after reading that verse, he reaches out his, his right hand and he touches me on the shoulder and again, instantly, everything turns white. And I hear him say, I will have a bride. 